Real quick, before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that this episode will be marked as explicit due to the very adult themes and content of the films I'm going to be discussing. If that makes you uncomfortable, then use your own discretion. However, I don't want to censor or leave out anything I believe is of thematic importance, so I've left a lot of that content in. Anyway, that's your warning. Let's roll. While I have a lot of egg on my face for judging The Lighthouse too early, The Witch and the importance that it plays in American folklore, all that and more, in my own words. Well, today's been confusing. I was originally, when today began, going to talk about those mega TV shows that have become very popular, like uh, Westworld, Game of Thrones, even some of the network versions of shows that were wildly popular, such as Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, but uh, doing some research into some of the films I talked about last week, uh, I discovered a lot of critics praising the lighthouse which kind of got me thinking back to how my wife and i have not stopped talking about the lighthouse since we saw it and don't worry if you haven't seen it because it did fly a little bit under the radar i'll be giving you a good summary of what happens literally in the film but it hit the major number one mark for a movie that i that i consider great that i consider very good And that number one mark, the top slot to a very well-made film, is that I keep thinking about it. I can't get it out of my head after I watch it. And I, I mean, when it stops, my wife looked at me and the first words out of her mouth were, you're never picking a movie again, because The Lighthouse is strange. It is a weird movie. If you're expecting to be entertained, or you just like ships in the ocean... This is not really the movie for you. It is a weird movie, and it doesn't stop getting weird. Once they begin the process of psychologically wrecking your experience, they just keep going. And it doesn't really let up until the very end in the final scene, which is very shocking and very disturbing. But there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of thematic elements in this movie that you could dive deep into and you could talk about for hours. And I only have about a half hour to talk about all of that, so I'm going to go through a lot of the different themes in this movie. I have six I've written down. It may They may mail together. It may become ten. I've thrown all of this together this afternoon, and it's about four now, so I've got a couple of hours into researching this. But a lot of the articles I read merely summarize it or pull from interviews with The director, Robert Eggers, did a phenomenal job at giving the movie a very distinct feel. Which is just like he did for his first movie, The Witch. And The Witch will be what I talk about in the second half of this podcast. Because I think it's really worthwhile to compare the two films and see the message he's... Cindy. 
both of these films deal a lot with isolation and shame and punishment. But they each tell it from a different perspective. <clears throat> but they each tell it from a different perspective and have a different overall message. And they have a very distinct tone. They each have their own way of making you feel uncomfortable in the audience. But don't worry, I am here to summarize both of them. So let's dive in. The Lighthouse. I found an article on Collider.com, which has a fantastic summary. So I'm going to read that summary, and I might give color commentary, but I'm going to try to get through the whole summary so that we're all on the same page. As always, if you have not seen this movie, I highly suggest you see it. My summary will not be enough, because this movie is an experience. So I'm going to take a second here and just let you know that if you watch the movie, or if you plan to watch this movie at all, don't listen to my podcast. Go watch it, because it's a great experience when you have no idea what you're getting into. My wife and I had no idea. We just wanted a random movie night, and my goodness, we left different people. It is a strange tale, and I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Okay. Two lighthouse keepers, Ephraim, played by Robert Pattinson, and Thomas, played by Willem Dafoe, arrive on a windy, isolated rock for a four-week maintenance shift. Thomas is a salty old-timer with a false leg. Ephraim, a newcomer to the gig, replacing a partner who had went insane. Thomas sets Ephraim to grunt work, carting rocks and swabbing floors decreeing that he and he alone can tend to the light at the top of the tower. Ephraim kills a seagull, a heinous crime in the eyes of superstitious Thomas, who believes the birds carry the souls of lost sailors. Tensions between the two men boil over after they miss their rescue at the four-week window. They drink themselves into shouting stupors. Ephraim masturbates furiously to a mermaid statue in between visions of a real mermaid, haunting his waking moments. Thomas farts up a storm. The sea rages dangerously outside until secrets are revealed. Ephraim isn't Ephraim at all. His name is also Thomas, and he murdered a man and stole his identity. As it turns out, it won't be the only murder in his life. After discovering a logbook filled with criticisms and recommendations to withhold pay, the younger Thomas beats the elder man bloody tries to bury him alive, and finally buries an axe in his face. Partnerless, Thomas turned Ephraim finally ascends to the lighthouse's spinning, glowing orb, and whatever he sees in the light overcomes him completely, turning him into a photonegative husk and sending him tumbling down the spiral staircase to the bottom of the structure. Right after that happens... We see his body laying on the shore, his stomach ripped open and seagulls devouring his organs. His eyes have been burned open in his skull, and it's safe to assume he has died. Well, that's what literally happens on screen. It may make no sense to you, and it made no sense to me. It was very strange, and a lot of the strange psychological elements of it had to do with Ephraim's visions. 
Now, it was revealed that Ephraim's name was Thomas. When it's necessary, I will refer to him as Tommy because he is the younger of the two. And I will refer to Thomas, the elder, as Tom. But for most of this review, I'm going to refer to Robert Pattinson's character as Ephraim. It's just easier to keep them separated. <clears throat> well, after Ephraim died and some old sailor music came on and the credits rolled, I didn't really understand much of what I saw. Because the psychological degradation that Ephraim went through happened slowly throughout the film, but never had a central tipping point. His first night there, he has a nightmare in which he sees a man uh, drowning in the water around a lot of logs. He also sees a siren, or mermaid if you're unfamiliar, underwater screaming at him. And that wakes him up out of his stupor, and he sees Tom coming in to sleep during the day while Ephraim goes about doing chores. A lot of times at night... Ephraim, until they miss their four-week window, until that point, a formula tends to flow through the movie. At night, Ephraim will stay awake and have strange visions of perhaps Tom with tentacles all around him in the lighthouse. Maybe he sees Tom watching him as he goes out to the storage shed for his, his nightly ritual, would be a good way to put it. Uh, the first moment that Ephraim arrives at the lighthouse, he goes to the bedroom, he sits on the mattress, reaches in a hole, and finds the statue of a mermaid that he keeps with him throughout the movie. This statue seems to somewhat symbolize his either mental instability or mental stability as it gets broken and destroyed throughout the film. Either way, it's definitely a major moral stumbling block for Ephraim. And it seems his uh, more sexualized, more vivid fantasies involving the mermaid, they progressively get worse until he confesses to Tom about the murder that he committed. And I wouldn't say it was an exact murder, but in his past, before he arrived at the lighthouse, he was a logger. And he saw a co-worker of his fall into the river that they were moving logs down. He screamed for help. Ephraim did not help him, and the logs crushed him and drowned him. Ephraim then states to Tom that he didn't feel anything, except that he wanted a smoke. At that point, there's a very strange time shift. You hear echoing Tom saying, why'd you spill your beans? And Ephraim becomes very paranoid. That's when he really starts becoming aggressive against Tom. And he even finds the book that was mentioned in the summary with all the negative reviews. There's a little bit of a feel of what the movie's like. I would, again, suggest that you go watch it. It's definitely an experience. Let's move to the first interpretation that we have. There is that forbidden fruit temptation. All right. This paints the light in the lighthouse as something that Ephraim desires, 
whether it be sexual gratification in nature, whether it be enlightenment, whether it be forgiveness and the meaning of life. Maybe it's the face of God. We don't really know how he views it, but he always wants to be in the lighthouse. And there is definitely an element of manhood present in this movie. And he either desires to be a man or I guess manhood in the, in the, in charge, man in charge sense. Not that he's a woman the whole time. This would be manhood in concept and ideal. But regardless of what he views the light in the lighthouse to be, he is not allowed there. His superior, the very experienced Tom, withholds that privilege from him and states explicitly he's not allowed to the light. And Ephraim states back, regulation states that we alternate two weeks up, two weeks down, meaning that Tom should be in the lighthouse for two weeks every night and Ephraim taking care of the day-to-day maintenance duties. And then for the final two weeks, Ephraim be with the light at night and Tom taking care of the day-to-day maintenance duties. Tom is very territorial about this lighthouse. His last apprentice he states, which is unreliable, but Tom states that his last apprentice went crazy and killed himself because he believed the light to be some kind of mystical, all-powerful being. And you might have already picked up on the fact that there is a lot of old 19th century sea lore in this film which Robert Eggers is very good at using old folklore to give his movies the textbook feel, the otherworldly feel. It seems like he will pick stories we've already heard and make them just horrifying, just terrifying and upsetting and will give you nightmares, but you're not seeing anything you haven't heard before. The sailors left alone, marooned, going crazy and seeing mermaids. We've heard that story a hundred times before. The biggest example I could say would be Rime of the Ancient Mariner. But whatever the interpretation, Ephraim desires that light and it's withheld from him. And for the first four weeks, up until they discover they are marooned, Ephraim restrains himself from any heavy drink. He only eats and drinks what he's allowed to by regulation. And his only vice, well, there are two major moments of vice, but the first major moment of vice would be his sneaking off to masturbate in the storage shed. And you might be thinking, Wes, you're saying masturbate a lot in this podcast. That's uncomfortable and weird. Well, Welcome to my experience watching this movie, because I could name three very graphic masturbation scenes. So, you're going to have to ride through this just like I did. And I had no idea that I would get to see uh, Robert Pattinson masturbating, but here we are. You know, that's, that's the world we live in. Anyway, that's one of his vices, where he'll sneak off and fantasize about mermaids. And the other vice would be that he kills the one-eyed seagull that's been taunting him. 
Throughout his stay at the lighthouse, a one-eyed seagull has habitually taunted Ephraim and shown up when things weren't going bad or there was bad luck. Tom tells Ephraim that seagulls have the spirits of dead sailors and we should let them be, not touch them. Well, this is ignored by Ephraim, who doesn't take to any superstition at all. He grabs the seagull and smashes it. This seagull, in a lot of the reviews I read, is thought to be the former apprentice, almost warning Ephraim not to stay there. And that plays into one of the major theories in the film. Well, after Ephraim kills the seagull, the storm shows up, which delays their departure and causes them to slowly mentally degrade. Both of the characters do. One way to take the film would be that Tom is psychologically manipulating Ephraim with this forbidden fruit concept. He's using his power to belittle him. And a lot of the, a lot of the insults thrown around from Tom are very degrading to Ephraim's masculinity. And if you've ever wanted to see Willem Dafoe uh, call Robert Pattinson pretty as a girl, well, this is the movie for you. Because a lot of the insults have to do with the youth and the inexperience that Robert Pattinson's character, that Ephraim, has compared to Tom. Tom uses those insults to really stab at Ephraim. But I'll get more into that kind of subject later. Next up, we have a very good theory about this movie, which actually comes from the director. So that seems like a pretty good theory to me. Well, Robert Edgers discusses that he based this story on old mythological characters, Greek mythological characters. Robert Edgar himself said, We realized, well, Prometheus and Proteus never hung out in any Greek myths before, but that seems to be what is kind of happening here. And Prometheus might be taking on some characteristics that he hasn't in the past, Edgar said in some interview, in the same interview. But you know what? The classical authors did that all the time. Proteus, I'm still quoting from Collider.com, by the way. Proteus, one of the myth's first old men of the sea, a primordial keeper of knowledge and friend to the sea beasts that knew everything there is to know, but hated sharing that knowledge. Prickly old shithead that he was, Prometheus, the other hand, was one heck of a giver, a trickster titan. Prometheus famously stole fire from the gods, sparking intelligent life in humanity. Zeus, a noted asshole all around, ordered Prometheus chained to a rock where an eagle would arrive every day to pick out the titan's organs. Now that ending there definitely sounds familiar to me. In this theory and in this setup that Robert Eggers employs, you get a lot of the vibes of the old man in the sea keeping knowledge for himself, and Prometheus wanting to take that knowledge to give it out. And that's very well shown in the movie. And he makes a lot of changes, but there's one scene that gives it away, and that would be when 
Ephraim is attacking and strangling Tom. Tom, at one point, takes the shape... Well, he takes the shape of a lot of things. But one of the major ones would be that he takes the shape of a primordial sea god character with tentacles flailing, similar to a kraken. But that sequence also is great acknowledgement of seafaring lore mythology, such as King Neptune. And he even holds a trident, giving a nod there. And the movie uses a lot of different mythological reference points, and it kind of combines them into the disturbing mess that you see on camera. And I will say this, that a lot of the strange mythological scenes will come into play when I do the good, bad, and ugly review at the end of this explanation. The next major theory and way to view this movie uh, would be through solely the lens of the sea fables, such as King Neptune. And during Ephraim's time there, he becomes more and more enamored with this mermaid that he's created in his head. He views this mermaid as his hope to escape. A lot of times, after a horrible day, doing some kind of horrible task, whether it's cleaning out chamber pots, whether it's maintaining the light that he's never allowed to see, or being degraded all day by Tom, he will fantasize or dream about the siren. And it's always interesting to me, he will touch the siren, he will admire the siren's beauty, but the siren will begin to scream. And it's done phenomenally well. The sound in this movie is absolutely amazing. And that's why I would highly suggest finding a way to watch it in the theaters or in a home theater. You want to hear the sounds. You, you almost feel the sounds in this movie. It's, it's, it puts you in the moment and it's terrifying. And, and oddly enough, it keeps you a little bit at arm's distance because it's so shocking, which makes it feel that much more alien. And that makes the siren feel that much more alien. It's a mermaid. We've seen mermaids our whole lives. We're used to what they look like, but it's terrifying and alien and scary all, all wrapped up in one. And I'll get a little bit more into the what's so scary about it in another, uh, another part of this podcast, but the screams seem to awaken Ephraim. He always runs from it. He's terrified of it. And there's one scene after it screams at him on the shoreline. He runs in to tell Tom about it. He runs in the room. Tom explains that a storm is coming and they need to get ready. And it seems to just leave Ephraim's mind. He seems to forget completely about the mermaid, which if it were me, it would be on the forefront of my mind. And that was my first major tip that Ephraim is a lot more unstable than he's letting on. And because of his killing of the seagull right near the end of their time there, the weather becomes terrible. The visions of the siren become increasingly more graphic. And his fear and paranoia of Tom increase. Tom himself seems to be staying the same. He seems to not really be changing. He just continues working. However, during this next period where Ephraim begins drinking heavily 
and begins graphically visualizing more of the mermaid, more of the death and fear of the sea, Tom seems to become less and less reliable and asks him about time. He asks him, how long have we been abandoned here? Five weeks? Five months? Two days? And as a moviegoer, you have no idea. The time in the film passes so fast and so quick. Between edits, you may jump days. There is no distinct day-night, day-night formula. While that was early on in the film, very present, it has been done away with. And because of the storm, you don't even know if it's daytime or nighttime. The only one who's able to keep a record is Tom, who has a record book. And that book itself becomes a source of desire within Ephraim. He seems to show the characteristics of a first mate wanting to usurp the captain and take over the ship. Another story we've heard since childhood. And he tries to steal the keys off of the captain. He believes the captain's gone insane and he's the one that's sane. He's the one that should be in charge. And eventually he tries to betray the captain and take the escape boat out into the sea, which is ludicrous. The scene where he tries to get that boat is so stormy and the sea is so unpleasant, he wouldn't make it far anyway. They both have become delirious, yet Tom seems to be hanging on to his duties and Ephraim is the one driven mad by the isolation. This brings us to a big point, psychological interpretation. The psychological theory of this film is a little, I would say, lazy. It's interesting if you've never seen a psychological horror before, if you've never watched a Nolan film, if you've only ever watched blockbuster films and this is the closest you come to an art film, then yeah, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. But there is a theory, I, I, I should tell you about it, there is a theory that Tom and Ephraim are the same person grappling with guilt over the murders. Uh, there's an idea that Tom is the young version of himself, his first time on the island, and he kills his master and goes crazy and loves the light, which the older Tom in the movie definitely is shown to really love that light. He, in the first night there, walks up to the light, he drinks and gets naked and stands in front of it with his arms out, almost embracing its warmth. I, I don't really know. It was strange. And when Ephraim sees him, spies on him, he sees tentacles as if from a kraken or King Neptune, whirling about within that chamber. And then, of course, Ephraim wakes up. Well, Ephraim starts losing time, especially from all of his drinking, and when he reveals his dark secret, his dark past, he loses a lot of his mental stability. And that's when he begins plotting to kill Tom. And then Ephraim, it's theorized that at the end, when he looks into the light, which is one of the best cinematic sequences I've ever watched, and he goes mad, he falls down the lighthouse and there's a very distinct snap of a leg breaking. 
Well, the whole time, Tom has been limping around and has given two different stories for how he broke his leg. That could be how it happened. And Tom has been killing his apprentices because he's a killer. He's crazy. He's lost it. And that could be where Tom is now. That could be the cycle he's trapped in psychologically. It could be more symbolic for Ephraim that Tom is his dark version of himself that's gone crazy and Ephraim is his youthful side fleeing guilt. There's a point in the film where Ephraim has a dream that he sees Tom kill his previous apprentice and that's what preempts him to become more and more paranoid. The That theory... It's described in uh, an article I found. I believe it's the same article. Let me look here. Yes, what do you know? Collider.com. Way to go. You, you have pretty much supported this entire episode. This theory is described as Reddit theory-ish. It feels very much like someone watched this movie and then wrote about it on the internet. They're the same character, man. It's all in his head, man. It's crazy, man. The problem I have with a lot of these theories, while it can be interesting, it could apply to anything. I mean, you could watch Star Wars and and be like, you know, this could all be in Luke's head. He could have died out in the desert looking for old Ben Kenobi. And all these movies are in his head, man. They all represent his states of purgatory, man. You can't apply this strange logic without evidence. There is evidence in this movie. I get it, but it doesn't really hold up with some of the stranger aspects, specifically the final shot in the film of Robert Pattinson being eaten alive by seagulls. That symbolically makes no sense with the psychological state. I tried to justify it with my wife when I was talking through this movie and state that maybe that's his young self, his identity, Ephraim being killed off and Tom being the new identity. But that doesn't really hold up either. I'm, I'm, I'm a little disappointed in myself, even for thinking that could be it. I think that last scene is a, to cue us in to the more mythological state of this movie. Or, even better, the next theory. The psychosexual interpretation of this film. I explained at the beginning of this podcast that this would be an explicit podcast because of some of the elements of this movie. I've touched on a couple of these elements already. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into these. If I decide to re-release this podcast, cleaned up a bit and not explicit, then this entire point will be removed because it's very hard to talk about this point without the more adult themes. Now, I'm not going to describe something necessarily as erotic. Don't worry. It's not supposed to be even in the movie, but it's definitely something worth delving into. The mermaid, and the, or the siren, as it's described in the movie, is a major point of lust and repression within Ephraim. He doesn't have a wife and has only worked manual labor jobs and is described in an insulting way from Tom as being very pretty, very dainty, and this could be viewed in two major lights. One light could be that's just men 
talking to each other. This is definitely hardworking, uh, more blue-collar men just messing with each other, just knocking each other back and forth verbally because they will uh, butt heads a lot, but they'll also drink heavily and dance. And it's a very complicated, codependent relationship. But if you have two tough men having to live nonstop and work together for a month, these kinds of insults and comfortable nature with each other is going to develop. But it's interesting that Ephraim is very... Ephraim will dive deep within himself and fantasize about the siren until those fantasies start to control him. And there's one point where he sees the siren and he actually begins to have sex with that siren. And during those scenes, it's intercut with very upsetting images, not only of him masturbating, but also of him reeling in a lobster cage that has a rotting head inside it, presumably of someone he has killed or of his guilt of killing someone in the past coming to haunt him still. It's also theorized that that head is of the previous apprentice, and that is some of his mental evidence for accusing Tom of being the murderer. Well, while Ephraim is having sex with this mermaid, he becomes scared and frightened of the scream that it makes. Oh, fun little aside, this movie does answer the long-held question of how would this sexual fantasy play out? Well, it's graphically shown to us on The Mermaid where uh, its point of entry would be. And it's definitely a strange scene, but I believe the shot does have some interpretational value of the mermaid's lady parts. It's the only time that something of that shape and nature is present in the film. The only time. Everything else is very phallic. The lighthouse, the ships, everything is very overtly masculine. But that's the one source of femininity. And it's interesting that Ephraim's one source of femininity is all in his head and it starts to torment him. There is one very quick scene, very, very quick, where they are both very drunk. And Tom seems to lean in for a kiss. And Ephraim pushes him back, and they begin fighting. That's moved over very quickly, but in this kind of interpretation, it can be viewed that, yet again, Tom and Ephraim are the same person, and it seems to be that Tom might be struggling with his heterosexuality, probably because he can't cut it as a lighthouse operator. He's not a manly man. And in this time period, in the setting of the movie, that could be very daunting. Because in the 19th century, that's what manly men did. They were brave. They weren't scared. And by being taunted at and being degraded by the more masculine side of his mind, he begins to question his heterosexuality. And in order to escape that, he fantasizes a beautiful mermaid. But when it begins to scream at him, he can't, he can't handle it. He can't commit to a real relationship, a real heterosexual relationship, 
because of the demands that it puts on him. And that's brought up by Tom. His wife hated that he worked and was away at a lighthouse with another dude for 13 years. That tore the family apart because he was absent. And Tom seems to be, while he is masculine, he also seems to be hiding his true self. Ephraim is undoubtedly hiding his true self. He's the one that seems to be struggling the most, though. And you could play into this, the younger generation being more open to some things, the older generation not having this problem, but repressing it more. And honestly, I believe the whole psychosexual interpretation doesn't hold a lot for the story. I think it's more interesting elements and interesting character elements and psychological elements put in. And the fear of a woman is a major play there, the fear of sexuality. Ephraim and Tom both express fear and shame with their sexuality. They both boast that they could get a woman to bed, and they both share stories of women they've bedded in the past, but there's a strange moment where Ephraim point-blank asks Tom, do you feel shame when you're in bed with a woman? And Tom pauses and changes the subject. There is this seeming need for men in this world, according to the movie's logic, men need to address issues with intimacy and fear of intimacy instead of repressing it and trying to be the quote-unquote manly men that they are. And by having intimacy and being okay with strange, different ideas that may scare them, with relationships that might lead to less insanity and this message would be from the director of the movie i'm not forcing that interpretation because i believe that the director is using the psychosexual elements to make us uncomfortable as viewers i don't think he's making a movie about heterosexuality he may have but that would be up to him to decide. I think that he used these phallic images to make us uncomfortable. Similar to how Ridley Scott used phallic and sexual imagery in the Alien franchise, which did its part and is visually undeniable in that franchise, but the message in that movie isn't really as clear are we supposed to be scared of sexuality? Are we supposed to just move on? Are we not supposed to look into an alien egg, which could have a creature jump out at us? See, it breaks down at a certain point when that's the only lens you view the movie through. And it, Robert Eggers wouldn't be the only director to use sexual imagery to provoke a discomfort in the audience. So I don't think that's the major theme of this movie. But it's worth exploring. I would look at the idea of the movie being a interesting critique on the ideas of film itself. This would be more of a personal interpretation. I haven't really found anything to back it up. But it seems like the light and knowledge is something to be attained and desired from the youth, whereas the elder want to keep it for themselves. The format of this movie is what leans me into this theory. 
or I guess this interpretation is not really a theory as much as it is an examination and a lens to look at the movie through. The strange small aspect ratio, the 19 to 1 aspect ratio, and the black and white film style gives it an older, uh, harsher, darker edge than modern movies with digital clean color palettes. And it makes the movie feel like you're watching a 1950s sailor tragedy. Something that would have starred Charlton Heston long time ago. Where he braves the sea and braves the loneliness. And that could be a message in the movie. That these old films that had very simplistic man versus nature stories would have a deeper psychological impact on those characters. And older film goers, older heroes of lore would want to hoard their old stories, would want it to be simple. The lighthouse is good, and mine, and mine alone. Whereas the younger generation may want something deeper, something with more meaning than the older generation has. The older generation might find meaning in their form of film-going experience. They may find the older tales to be so rich and full of life, but that also comes from what they grew up with. The meaning they had, they put on the film, just as the current generation does, just as the generation after us will have. Their lives will have an impact on how they view the film. And The Lighthouse may be using that. You may go into it thinking, this reminds me of a movie I saw 10 years ago, or a story I read in college, or this is totally foreign to me, and the first time I'm seeing any of this. And those interpretations are being played with. The old storyline that we've seen a hundred times is definitely a part of this. That is inescapable. We know what's going to happen. So what is provoking us to see it again? What's provoking Ephraim from seeing the light when he's seen light before? What's propelling him to find the wisdom, find the fulfillment that the light can offer and it eventually drives him mad it eventually curses him which this could be interpreted as uh, an almost hp lovecraft idea that once you attain the forbidden knowledge it will drive you mad because you won't be able to handle it uh, it's and i think that's all there is to that i think the most Lovecraftian that this film has is that Ephraim wants the knowledge and Tom is an elder beast that can handle the knowledge, but he's not from this world. And he's able to change time and space and mold Ephraim to his bidding. And when Ephraim finally ascends the lighthouse and can view the forbidden knowledge, it drives him mad and kills him. That is one very good interpretation a lot of critics follow that interpretation and there's definitely some elements of lovecraftian monsters in this movie personally i prefer the mythological or the psychological but you can't view this movie and not see all of the different elements at play creating this craft and that's what makes a good movie a good movie 
is several interpretations can be pulled from one piece of media just by one person. Maybe by different people have different interpretations. Like I said before, they bring different lives and different experiences to the viewing of this film. My wife had a very different interpretation of this film than I did. The actors probably have somewhat of an interpretation. I wouldn't be surprised if they each had their own idea of what this movie really was, or perhaps Robert Edgar pulled them aside and explained, this is what the movie is, this is what it means. But I get the feeling this is more of the Synecdoche, New York kind of film, where there's a lot in it, and the director knows, but everyone's going to interpret it differently. Either way, it's horrifying. It plays on old stories we heard when we were children, similar to the other film I will be talking about in this podcast, which is The Witch. But before we get to The Witch, let's run through the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good. Writing. It was written in the 19th century sailor dialect, diligently researched by the director. It is phenomenal. The soliloquies and the long monologues that you will get are amazing. And it's filmed in such a dynamic way, really capitalizing on the black and white, to give such a strong, staunch feel to Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson's performances. Which is another good. The acting. Both actors are at the top of their game. They play varied emotions. They can go from terrified, scared, vulnerable to aggressive and terrifying and territorial. And they play with such a unique power dynamic between the two of them that the film feels very claustrophobic, very intimate with these two guys butting heads and and drinking together and they're trapped unable to find any solace and safety from the storm that's bearing down on them. The bad. Very niche. Uh, Very niche audience. I'm going to say that this would be the worst film to put on during a party. You will kill the mood. It is strange. It has some very adult themes, very adult sequences, and it can be uncomfortable. It's not like the kind of movie that you're going to... You're going to want to go around bragging about seeing I Saw the Lighthouse, man. It it feels like literature you'd be required to read in school. And after reading it, you'd realize, oh, that's kind of cool. But it's still very explicit in some (laughs) scenes. It can be very graphic in some scenes. Uh, Uncomfortable. Uh, Another bad point... The CGI, when you are filming with film in black and white, and there are only two scenes, two quick, quick scenes with CGI, the former looks horrendous. The latter looks pretty good. They, they focus more on the latter because it was during the climax of the film when Ephraim was strangling Tom, and Tom takes the shape of King Neptune-like figure and His bottom half have tentacles whirling about, one of which is grabbing uh, Ephraim by the throat. That looks pretty good. It it really works there. The first time Ephraim goes to the lighthouse and he sneaks a peek up at Tom, you see a tentacle flailing about above Ephraim's head. It looks very CG. 
because it looks to be of higher quality than the setting it is in. And that plays a bit to the benefit of not knowing if it's real or not. But I would say overall it looks pretty rough. But that would be really my only two major complaints of the film. Overall, very fantastic. The Ugly. Three-way tie. We got a three-way tie here. Three most disturbing scenes in that movie. The Thomas murder scene, which I just described with King Neptune's tentacles. During that sequence, Ephraim is strangling Tom, and he sees Tom take the shape of the siren, of King Neptune, of Ephraim. And then we see it's Tom strangling Ephraim, which plays into some of the theories I discussed earlier. And then we see him take the shape of the man that Ephraim murdered. It's very upsetting. It's horrifying. He then forces Tom to walk like a dog on a leash and then bury himself alive. And then he's killed with an axe to the head. The whole sequence was upsetting, unpleasant, and uncomfortable. There was the looking into the light scene, which was terrifying. The camera and the film slowly goes photo negative. We see Ephraim change into this ill-defined, highly contrast screaming man. The sound is strange and foreign and it's, it's whirring loud noise. We see the film get sped up at some parts, almost like you're watching some kind of creepy, hashtag creepy ARG on YouTube. And out of nowhere, in a movie that heavily relies on film, it throws you off, and it's unpleasant. And it goes on for at least a minute. It's, it's real disconcerting, real upsetting. And then there's also the final scene with Ephraim, Burned eyes, open belly, seagulls everywhere. That sticks with you. Let me tell you, that doesn't go away after watching the movie. All right, we're going to take a little break, and we're going to get back. We're going to talk about Robert Eggers' 2015 phenomenal out-of-the-gates hit, The Witch. Be right back. Wow, that took a while. But don't worry, I'm going to blow through The Witch, and then we're going to blow through the last few things I got for you. So, The Witch, it was made in 2015 by the same director, and the major idea I want you to take away for The Witch is that it plays upon the traditional American folklore of the woods, the witch. Think Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Scarlet Letter and the Black Veil, that fear of the woods is a major theme of the witch because we actually see early on in the movie that there is a witch because it kidnaps a baby and turned into some kind of paste i don't really know they don't really show it it's a very upsetting scene but that's why the baby is kidnapped by the witch the witch later torments the young boy by luring him into the woods and then he shows up later traumatized and he eventually dies with a small apple inside of his mouth. A lot of the themes in The Witch are familiar themes, and instead of playing on the mythological themes that The Lighthouse plays on, Robert Edgar instead focuses on the puritanical Christian religious themes. 
because the family is sent out of the colonial puritanical colony because they have committed some kind of sin or atrocity. We're not cued in to exactly what happened, but it is believed that the father is being punished. And when throughout the movie you see the father and the four children all have some kind of sin in their hearts, something they are doing that is immoral or wrong, and even the mother who lacks love and care for her children, that could be considered her sin and her wrongdoing. So there's this overarching idea of a weak family who is spiritually weakened, and there was a reveal that at the end of the movie, their goat was a physical manifestation of Satan, who was tempting and twisting the family to his dark will. And he pitted them against each other. For most of the movie, there was a lot of infighting, and the big reveal is that the witch who was in the movie was not the villain. The witch was a woman who you didn't know if she was crazy or not. They never explicitly stated that. And right up until the end, when the daughter is talking to Satan, she's the only one left. Her family is dead through catastrophes. She signs her soul away to Satan and becomes a witch herself. And that is the title-bearing character, the witch. And it serves as a great retelling of the old, fearful witch folklore. Stay out of the woods, for these dark satanic beings will tempt you and pull you away. And it plays really well. It reminded me a lot of Nathaniel Hawthorne and a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe. And that shows that this director, Robert Eggerts, loves to focus on those old fears that Americans have about American folklore. Those old, deep, almost genetic fears we have in our bones about the woods, about the dark, about the ocean. And he plays those up. And he plays on the idea of a modern film, a modern filmmaking technique being used to portray these old dark fears. So real quick, Good, Bad, and the Ugly of the Witch, and then we'll move on to my Cinebad update. Good, Bad, and the Ugly, the good writing, pacing, and the impending feeling of doom. Those three are phenomenal. It's written in the old English dialect that the Puritans would speak. The fact that it was so well-researched that he could use this dialect within the dialogue of the movie is phenomenal. And it's amazing. And these two movies really show how great this director is at researching these old forms of speech. And he's able to implement it in his films with amazing skill. The bad will be a major one, the sound. The father has most of the speaking lines, and he speaks in such a deep voice. With that dialect that's very well written, you can barely understand him. It sounds, to me, it sounds like he's carkling marbles. Oh my goodness. I had to watch that movie with subtitles on just to understand what was happening. I couldn't make out what they were saying. But he fixed that with his second movie. I understood every word that was being said by the two characters in the lighthouse. And that's really a technical flaw that even some of the best filmmakers have suffered from, where there's so much emphasis on the music and the environment and the writing that sometimes just the 
physical ability to hear what the characters are saying can be put on the back burner. The ugly of that movie, Crow, scene with the mother. There's a scene, in case you haven't seen it, there's a scene where the mother wakes up at night and breastfeeds her baby and then it cuts away and it's actually a crow that she's holding that's pecking away at her chest. Horribly upsetting. In a movie that contains the actual devil, that scene was more upsetting, so that should tell you how truly disturbing that scene was. All right, that wraps up the two reviews. Let's move on to Cinebad. Fanatic is the only choice for this one. Fanatic starring John Travolta is awesome. It's so bad, and he plays the worst kind of representation for some kind of mentally ill guy. It's horrible. He looks like he's a grown man making fun of someone with autism, but he it's not even in like a tasteless way. It's just in an inept way. It's hilarious. It reminds me of Face Off, where John Travolta was trying to act like Nicolas Cage and overreacted to everything. It's, it's hilarious. The dialogue's so bad. The sound is so bad. The, what effects they had was so bad. The story is is hilarious just google it watch a few clips on youtube it is a treat and i can't wait to have a viewing party where i invite some friends over and we watch fanatic because that movie is a treat and moving on flop watch if you remember last week i brought up the movie countdown the schlocky horror movie where there's an app that can tell you when you're about to die Ooh, well it flopped hard everyone from what I can read, has stated that it, it's your basic teen horror. Every teen is an archetype. It's very pandering to Gen Zer. Hashtag cell phone. Hashtag selfie. Mom doesn't understand me. Well, it panders bad, and it got the result. Unfortunately, it was such a cheap, low-budget movie that it made three times its budget. So there'll probably be a sequel, Countdown Two. Electric Boogaloo. We'll wait for that. Next flop watch, we have Charlie's Angels. Now, this might be a controversial one, but I'm going to guess that this movie's not going to meet the expectations that a lot of people have for it. Some people love the new cast. Some people hate the new cast. A lot of people are on the fence. I'm going to go ahead and say this movie's not going to be good. Not because of any massive misstep or some kind of weird political agenda. Honestly, I think it's just not going to be good because it's going to be safe. They're going to play it safe because they don't have the star-studded big-name cast they had in the original, both the original TV show and the movies that were later made in the 90s, early 2000s. Since they don't have those kind of names attached to it and they're not really saying it's a remake, they're kind of saying it's a soft continuation, this kind of easing into such a big name like Charlie's Angels, I'm going to go ahead and say... It's not going to be good, but I'm going to even throw another one on this. And I will put money down if someone wants to challenge me. Kristen Stewart's going to step out of her shell and actually shine in this movie and show us that she's a better actress than we all think she is. However, the movie itself will not be good. Well, that about wraps up this special episode where I mainly focused on The Lighthouse and The Witch. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe. 
and share with your friends. Let us know. We're available on all of the podcasting platforms that you can think of. Special thanks to Anchor.fm for getting me started. I would like to thank Hollywood Insider, Collider.com, Screen Rant, Den of Geek, all of those for helping me out, as well as the films themselves. If you have any questions or would like to suggest something, you can reach me at imowpodcast at gmail.com. That's imo, I-M-O-W podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, and this has, as always, been In My Own Words. See you next week.